Hier komen wij in vreemd. This is Red Flag Radio. We record this podcast on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Roz Ward and I'm happy to be back after a little break in production of the podcast. Um, There's been a lot going on, obviously, and this episode in particular is something that I've been um, very keen to talk about, very frustrated about the lack of a socialist political perspective on the current situation in, in healthcare and the crisis that is very much discussed in the media as a crisis, but the question of what you can do about it is seems to be um, terminally ignored. So I wanted to get some perspectives from workers and people who help support workers' collective activity, and the three people that we're lucky enough to have join me and Liam on the podcast today are two frontline healthcare workers, Cecilia, who works in Allied Health in a Melbourne hospital, who's also now officially a friend of the podcast, returning. Declan, who's a first-time contributor to Red Flag Radio, we're very pleased to have you, who is a nurse um, at a Sydney hospital and has just had a victory, which I'm sure he'll mention at some point. And Jerem Small, who's very much a friend of the podcast um, and who is currently in campaign mode as the Victorian socialist candidate for Northern Metro. And I'll put some links about that campaign into the podcast notes for you to um, check out. If you're not already, shame on you, familiar with the Victorian socialist project here in Victoria. So let's start, I guess, with um, what the experiences are of health workers on the front lines. And you kind of get a little bit into this in the media, but I think not enough by any means. And we'll start with you, Declan, as a nurse. What I, like, well, well done for surviving to this point. Tell us about some of your experiences sort of during the pandemic, how the situation now really, I guess, compares to your experiences across the life of this pandemic and before. Yeah, I don't have like the entire time I've worked uh, as a nurse and six months of that has been as a registered nurse and a couple of years prior I was a nurse assistant. The entire time has been uh, during the pandemic or like just at the very beginning is when I like started working. So I don't really have a whole lot to compare it to previously, but sort of what the kind of stories you do see uh, in the press uh, like say they're all basically that's exactly what it's like. It's just completely fucked all the time. Um, it's the whole thing sort of seems to run on overtime at the moment. Like, uh, like, you know, people talk about how there's sort of no slack in the system. Like it doesn't have any ability to sort of stretch beyond, uh, what it's sort of capacity. It's all, it, it does sort of have some slack, but that slack is entirely based on like overtime and, uh, people really like putting themselves, like damaging their health to like, you know, work insane hours and, you know, putting, you know, neglecting their own lives and their own livelihood in order to sort of, you know, stay back and look after patients when, uh, you know, the night shift is understaffed or, you know, that kind of thing. It's sort of really, really, really bad. And like at, at the moment, the, I, I work in a ward that is one of the better staffed wards in my hospital. So I'm often sent to uh, other wards to fill in gaps. Um, and some of the wards that I've 
been to, particularly COVID wards, are just like completely like like you'll arrive and there'll be one staff nurse and there'll be like two other people um, who've been sent to it and, you know, 25, 30 patients. Um, and you, you just don't end up uh, delivering the kind of care that is necessarily safe or that is, you know, the ca- kind of care that you wanted to give to those patients because, you know, maybe one of them requires a higher level of care or, you know, one of them is more sick than the others and you have to neglect a whole series of people. Um, you know, because you just can't do everything you need to do in that shift. So you have to hand that, hand all that stuff over to the next shift and, you know, they have to hand it over then because there's just not enough hours in the day to deliver all the care that uh, needs to be given um, with the amount of nurses that are, you know, typically on a lot of days. So, yeah, it just, it just really is, like, dangerously understaffed and it's sort of very apparent why there is such an exodus from um, nursing and from healthcare generally. Um, because we're obviously not being compensated nearly enough um, for the amount of work we do. Like, you know, if we, we, you know, each one of us, you know, a lot of times are doing the work of like two or three nurses. So, and we're getting, you know, less than the the pay that one should get really. So it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, long answer short, it's completely fucked. Yeah. I saw, I have this memory and actually if you look at the, um, uh, back catalogue of Red Flag Radio episodes, you see we've recorded a few through the pandemic about the sort of the level of the crisis and the reason for some of the um, sharper points of the crisis. And I have this sort of sense that back in the early stages when people in the UK did that thing of going outside and clapping for the NHS workers, that that was going to come back later and look like a sort of horribly <laughs> kind of um, – I don't know, just it's like a macabre kind of memory now that that was months and months and months and months and months and months and months ago. And that that kind of, well, we really appreciate the work that you're doing that keeps echoing through this crisis again and again. And people say about nurses, oh, but we so appreciate it. And yet nothing has changed about the situation. Like it's crazy. Cecilia, you you work in allied health, which people might not really know Mm. what that means. Can you tell us about what that kind of work is? Because I guess it's not just the COVID wards that we're talking about here, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there are there are people in allied health who who work on COVID wards, but I, I don't. I'm I'm not in an area of health that um, deals uh, with people who've been hospitalised because of COVID. Um, I've been working in public hospitals for gosh, this is coming on. This is my eighth year, um, and yeah, and allied health um, within public health is uh, we have a, a range of different roles across. Um, this healthcare system. So in terms of diagnostic and imaging um, rehab of, of uh, patients, so helping them sort of post-surgery uh, or in recovery um, uh, in ICU, uh, and also uh, I guess a big part of our role too is assisting with discharge planning and and um, ensuring that, um, yeah, patients are, uh, are ready Um and safe and, and supported to, to leave hospital. Um, yeah, and I guess I really just echo a lot of what um, Declan was saying um, in terms of the experience and the, just the um, the pressure put, in, put on people um, to, to make up for all the shortfalls. And, like, Declan's completely right when he says, you know, the healthcare system has been running without any slack for decades. Um, this is, and in, in lots of ways, you know, you... 
you just get used to, um, you know, the um, under-resourcing and, um, you know, lack of time and lack of um, uh, lack of what you need, lack of staffing, lack of funding for staffing in, in different areas. But I think um, what we're seeing now, um, you know, as the pandemic continues and develops is that, you know, this is having a ripple effect um, uh, throughout um you know, the whole healthcare system. You can't place significant pressure on, on one section and it not to impact more broadly. Um, so, you know, as I said, I don't work um, directly with, um, you know, a, a lot of my patients do have COVID, but, you know, they're not in hospital because of COVID. Um, you know, uh, you can't, like the, the impact that um, the COVID has had on one section of the healthcare system is just um, extending everywhere. You know, and that's impacting on um, how we have to triage. Um, you know, we're constantly having to redefine, you know, who is most in need? How do we, um, you know, um, I guess divide up our our, our pool of resources that are, are constantly um is constantly getting smaller and smaller especially with staffing at the moment staffing is apps at an absolute premium i can't really stress that enough in terms of how understaffed all um areas of healthcare is at the moment um you know and it's like because of um uh you know the the last couple of years with of the pandemic um especially with like lockdowns and reducing services and that sort of stuff you know people were, were receiving delayed care delayed treatment delayed diagnoses um and so we're, we're um now seeing uh you know people with um more complex or advanced um uh illnesses or conditions um coming through the healthcare system and we're also seeing um the impact of um you know the uh the financial situation and the cost of living crisis and you know people having um you know kind of i guess being more desperate in terms of um the additional care and additional um uh you know requests and and support that they need when they come into the hospital as well mm. Um, and, you know, and the pressure um, means that for healthcare workers, um, you know, we're put in a position where we have to assist with pushing people through the system, um, you know, pushing them through to discharge, um, uh, you know, faster. Um, and, you know, this is obviously an awful experience um, for patients, um, especially if they're not getting the care that they need, the care that they deserve, the care that they're entitled to. But it's completely alienating um, for workers in the system. Um, you know, and as Declan said, this is not what we sign up for and um, you can't, yeah, you, the I guess the the uh, psychological impact that's having on on workers is is really mm. profound, um, and this is you know also a workforce that um, you know our adrenaline levels um, are pretty depleted after the last couple of years as well. Yeah, I mean it's just like all of these different aspects of the crisis that are not even measured. Mm. So the psychological impact on the workers. Even that, you know, we haven't even touched on sort of the ambulance side of the crisis, but oh, yeah. all of the um, all of the deaths that have occurred that would not have occurred if ambulances were provided. They're not measured mm. as preventable deaths; they're just measured at, as cardiac arrest deaths, or you know, yeah. whatever the actual physical cause of death is. Not the fucking system killing people. It's not yeah. just the COVID deaths that are mounting up 
to some of the highest in the world. It's all these other things that are not even measured, like the amount of pain that people who are waiting for elective surgery experience because they're not let into a hospital. Mm. Add that all to, like, it's just, it's sort of very difficult to even kind of let yourself think about because it's just so gross. And the thing I wanted to talk about with you, Jerem, is this idea from a, you know, prospective politician, but of a very different kind. The fact that politicians know this, they know this, they talk about the system being under pressure, they get given the reports from their civil servants, and they just sort of shrug their shoulders as if nothing can be done. Like, how, how does that happen? Why do they do that? How do they get away with it? Well, talking about the health system being under pressure is a whole lot better for them than saying that the healthcare system is in crisis or that the healthcare system is running on empty or that uh, I think it's the British Medical Journal this week, uh, the, the main editorial in the British Medical Journal, an eminently respectable publication, an establishment publication, is the, the NHS, the National Health Service. The National Health Service is not living with COVID. The, living, the National Health Service is dying from COVID. So it's a hell of a lot easier for a politician to say, well, there's a bit of pressure on the health system rather than public health is being absolutely shredded and decimated uh, by the failure of um, the Australian ruling class and their politicians to prepare for this crisis and to reallocate resources and to be honest with people and even to um, recommend some of the most basic things that would keep people out of hospital, like universal wearing of masks in crowded and indoor settings. Uh, this was suggested by the Greens uh, in Victoria back in May, and Daniel Andrews literally scoffed at it, like dismissed the idea, said, this is just rank politics it won't work against this virus. Um, like many thousands of cases, many, many thousands of cases could have been prevented if you'd just taken that advice. But pressure on the hospital system is a whole lot, uh, or pressure on the health system is a whole lot easier for a politician to say rather than we have fed you a bunch of bullshit about the pandemic being over or nearly over or vaccines alone being our path out of um, the pandemic, which is what Daniel Andrews was saying every day for months last year, um, but rather than admit any of these truths, um, it's a whole lot easier for the politicians to say this euphemism of pressure on the hospital system um, and the human toll behind those glib few words is absolutely horrific. Like, I, you know, and I'm sure people hear no personal examples. Like, I, you know, I listen to the radio a bit. The CFMU, the construction union, um, has a Sunday morning program. They were talking about uh, a few weeks ago, a labourer uh, was crushed by an enormous uh, fence on a site falling on her. Um, a couple of steel fixers were able to lift the fence, um, but her knee was pointing one way and her foot was pointing another. And the union it was two and a half hours for an ambulance to get to this woman. Um, this is from memory. This is in Box Hill. This is not far away from a major hospital. And they were told, uh, no, you can't move her. Uh, we suspect spinal damage, da-da-da. So she was left lying on the cold ground for two and a half hours. Of course, a paramedic on a motorbike came around because that's when the clock stops. And this has been well documented in Melbourne recently. You know, 85% KPI is, you know, getting to the call within uh, half an hour. But the clock stops when one paramedic turns up 
to administer some pain relief. It doesn't actually, and that's it. And that's another hour and a half, two hours or whatever uh, for the actual ambulance to turn up. But anyway, this is all just pressure on the hospital system. Um, I'm not sure whether that answers the question, but it just makes me sick, actually, the level of euphemism and the level yep. of lying from our political class. Yeah, and and just ignoring it. Like the picture of the opening of Parliament today, and I should say we're recording this on the 26th of July, the first sitting day of Canberra Parliament, and most of the people in that in that grim space not wearing masks, and you're just like, is this sort of some sort of alternative universe that these people live in and it is actually it's called the canberra bubble for a reason um okay so let's start to think about how we can fix this that's what i wanted this podcast to kind of give some sense of possibility and hope even and declan i guess if i start with you and to say You've been doing some organising amongst your fellow nurses as a union, a socialist union activist. And just if you were to say, okay, if nurses were in charge of the hospital system, what would you do as workers in hospitals to make it better? I was trying to think of like an answer to this question that was very like, like something that only I would know as someone who's there. But I feel like (laughs) the answer is kind of like, it's sort of obvious to every like, working class person really and it sort of is reflected in sort of I think most people's sort of you know vague sort of social democratic politics where you know what you would do is massively increase funding to the healthcare system um, massively increase the compensation to healthcare workers Um, I would also add to that uh, the abolition of private healthcare entirely um, and the reallocation of resources that already exist um, to where uh, where they're needed more Um, like those are sort of the most fundamental things just like a yeah, massive expansion of, of funding essentially um another part of it would be um yeah i think the the, the question of compensation as well and pay is really really important because a lot of the times i think there is sort of a, a hesitancy to talk about pay um because you know people don't uh you know a lot of people assume that we're going to lose support if we say we want a pay rise rather than say that we you know we just want what's best for our patients but in reality you're not going to have a functioning healthcare system if workers aren't paid what they're worth um, you, you can't like stop the exodus of workers from the healthcare system or attract new people to uh, become nurses or midwives or healthcare professionals if the pay is so bad that you have to like really, you know, budget your week and think, can I afford to fill up my petrol tank this week or can I afford to, you know, buy enough groceries or whatever? Like that's sort of a really crucial question. You can build as many hospitals as you want, but if you can't staff them, then what use are they? So, yeah, that what I think... If, if nurses and midwives were in charge or if workers were in charge of the healthcare system, yeah, that's what I'd say. Just massive expansion of, uh, of um, funding, massive, massive expansion in, in pay uh, to compensate people for what they're worth. Can I yeah. add something to that? Because I actually don't agree that, um, you know, paying, giving nurses and midwives a pay rise is something that's generally unsupported. Like I know when I talk to my patients at work, they're, you know, they're incredibly supportive and can see the hard work that goes into caring them, caring for them in hospital, even when um, things are so stretched. And I think 
that um, this, you know, and it's it's always, it kind of always makes me a bit frustrated and a bit sad when I hear um, like nurses around the time of bargaining or, or, or any workers like bargaining saying, oh, you know, it's it's not just about pay, it's about our conditions. Um, you know, and um, you, union leadership uh, or, you know, uh, politicians sort of saying, oh, you know, they're um, going on about pay or whatever. I think people are actually really supportive of healthcare workers getting paid more and we shouldn't be defensive about it because for a lot of us we get paid really badly for the work that we do. Um, yeah. Uh, but the other thing I would add when Declan and I are running hospitals um, <laughs> is um, we have to get rid of targets. Like, And, like, the whole way hospitals are funded, this whole sick, just-in-time healthcare system where, you know, someone comes into the hospital and their whole journey through the hospital is about meeting targets so that the hospital doesn't lose funding. That's not about providing proper health care for people. Mm. That's some neoliberal, like, like just nightmare. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's even though it's public health, it's still about profits. It's still about squeezing as much as you can out of, out of the workers. Yeah. Can well, I, can I add uh, really quick? Um, oh, yeah, just, no, no, I'm sure that we could just do a big wish list. Get comfy, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Go, Declan. Yeah, like on the question of being squeamish about pay, like it's sort of, it's something that kind of is an official line a lot of the time from union officials or from politicians that sort of doesn't reflect the reality of any, how anybody thinks in the real world, really, like. I remember like one of the strike rallies we had, there was a, a comment from the front saying, and, you know, and we all know this is not about pay. And then there was sort of a, a murmuring around me being like, yes, it is. <laughs> like, and, and like, that like, really didn't get a great reception. Um, so yeah, it is, it's, it's, well, while I think we're portrayed as being squeamish about pay, I think on the ground, we really aren't. Yeah. Um, and on that question, Jerem, I guess, um, because Cecilia said, even in a public hospital system, you know, the motivation is still about profits. With the Victorian Socialists, um, the kind of key slogan that orients every policy of the Victorian Socialists is people before profit. So how does that work in a public healthcare system? Can you explain a bit more about that in terms of what we could do to fix it to take out that profit motive? Well... I mean, like I endorse everything that Declan and Cecilia have said. There is also a creeping, or more than creeping, privatisation of health services in Australia, partly because it's so well advertised that the public health system is in crisis, mm. um, and so anyone that can afford to, um, you know, is, you know, th there's that is the push to uh, get people into private care, um, reallocating those resources and, you know, taxing the rich and the super rich so that you can actually afford to pay people what they're worth and have a decently funded system should be a no-brainer. Um, there's, well, yeah, like taking half a step back, like for any socialist and actually for like 90% of normal human beings, Health should just be a basic condition of a decent life. It should be something that society provides to everyone at no cost, um, you know, to the best of our ability. This is not a controversial statement, but it's definitely not the way that health is seen in the capitalist system because providing that level of health care to people becomes 
what the capitalists regard as a high fixed cost. You know, why are we paying these taxes? This is a drag on economic activity. And so the tendency is to lower that fixed cost, you know, which is what we've seen with the Kennett reform, so-called, and everything that's followed in the last 30 years in Victoria is, you know, squeezing every last minute, every last second out of, um, you know, healthcare workers' days. And then even that's not enough for um, our rulers and masters either because there's a tendency to want to turn these turn healthcare into a source of profit. And, I mean, in Australia, the, the place that that's gone the furthest is in aged care, where 30 or 40 years ago, very commonly, a huge proportion of aged care was delivered by local councils. And progressively, that has been sold off to the private sector. A couple of weeks ago, I met up with, um, uh, you know, someone who was in contact with Victorian socialists who, you know, a long story about the treatment of her mum in an aged care uh, uh, facility. And I looked up the um, the salaries of the chief executive officer, and of course it was like a million dollars for the CEO, six hundred thousand for the chief operating officer, um, and looked at their submission to the Aged Care Royal Commission, which was all about look, the problem is that basically that the market hasn't been allowed to re- let rip enough. You know, it's this halfway house. Oh, there are still regulations around the amount of care provided. Oh gosh, there are limits on how much we can charge. Um, so the solution then becomes to let the market rip. And then healthcare becomes not only a source of profit for the ruling class, it becomes a source of fear and gnawing insecurity for the working class that, you know, oh my God, if I lose my job, I'm going to lose the wage that I need to pay the private health insurance. Like it's yet another becomes so you've got the total transformation healthcare rather than being you know uh something that's essential to satisfying life's needs and having a decent life becomes actually one of the fetters that the ruling class uses the threat of ill health you know the chasm that you may fall into if you're forced back uh, onto the increasingly dilapidated public sector we can see where that goes in the united states where people are shit scared to speak up because healthcare is connected to their to their job there um, we're way off that, but we're travelling in the same direction. So mm. putting people before profit in healthcare is the exact opposite of all of that. And actually taking health workers seriously and, you know, organising health workers for power. It's very hard for people who are, um, you know, suffering from medical conditions and ongoing medical conditions from COVID to advocate for themselves. So, the fact that public sector uh, nurses in New South Wales have been out on strike repeatedly, highlighting the parlous state of things, um, is just such a, a, a beacon for every worker in this country. So more of that, please. Yeah. And Declan, can you tell us some more about that in terms of, so you're a nurse, you're a socialist, you're a union activist. How has that shaped your political activity? And can you tell us about your recent victory <laughs> to inspire us? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll chat quickly about the the, the victory because it's, it's it's very uh, it, was, it was sort of we won it yesterday sort of in a bunch of ways like so um, following uh, the series of strikes that we had that were really fantastic and I think really sort of set the pace um, for you know the, our fight in the public sector in, in New South Wales. Um, we had a special general meeting of the union on a day which uh, on the third uh, day of a of statewide strike, um, which was on the 28th of June, I think. Uh, and that meeting uh, 
in, in that meeting, the, the officials were pu- uh, putting a motion uh, to the membership that, would, that was largely supportable and, and, you know, included a commitment to continue fighting and to escalate industrial action and fight for ratios and whatever. But it also included a concession on the question of pay uh, where we would accept uh, the, um, the 3% pay offer that the state of, uh, government had, had given us. So um, uh, out of mine, Nathaniel and myself uh, put a amendment to that motion in the meeting um, saying that we were going to reject the government's pay offer and fight instead for a pay rise of at least 7%, um, which uh, got up at the meeting. It won by a very narrow margin at the at the general meeting. And because of this narrow margin um, and because uh, the officials weren't particularly happy with this, um, uh, it was then put to a, a vote that was uh, taken to each each individual branch. So each uh, branch would discuss the, uh, the motion and there would be a 24-hour period where we could vote electronically um, on the amendment, sorry, not the motion. Um, and the, uh, that with, took place with over the hope, a number of presumably, weeks. sorry, from the union officials that that would be a good way to kill this amendment, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Just adding some tension they, to the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, um, yeah, they actually, we were able to, um, uh, have our argument put in with an email, uh, against their argument, uh, that was sent to all members, um, as to why we should. Uh, go for, we should reject the pay offer and they argued why we, why we should take it. Um, their argument basically being um, that, you know, the, the IRC, the Industrial Relations Commission, which is the sort of body that polices industrial relations in New South Wales, um, you know, the IRC has this legislation that we, you know, public sector workers can only get pay rides of 2.53% plus um, super. And so that if we, you know, reject this pay offer, that we'll, you know, there's a chance that they'll come back with nothing or we'll, we'll have no pay rise while we go into arbitration. You know, a lot of people were accusing us of not knowing how the system works and, you know, being naive and, and, and whatever. Um, but uh, when it was put to branches, we won by a significantly bigger margin than we did in the general meeting, <laughs> um, at least from the branches that I'm aware of. Um, we seem to have won mostly 75 to 25. That was sort of seemed to be the kind of split that um, that uh, was reflected in, in most branches. Um, and I think that was sort of because we sort of, yeah, we, 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 we were, we're swimming with the tide in a bunch of ways. I think a lot of nurses are having gone through, you know, some of, you know, the worst year or two years of their lives, uh, you know, at work um, being, you know, subject not only to horrific conditions, but a pay freeze as well. And just a series of really terrible pay offers. Um, workers, I think nurses and midwives were not interested in con- conceding on the question of pay. Um in this context so i think that has been yeah really really good i'm still kind of on a high about it <laughs> um but there's a lot uh more fighting to do uh to actually um you know smash that uh that law restricting pay rises um and i look forward to to taking part in it um and for the, the question of uh what like how does um being a socialist affect you know, the way you organize at work. Well, I think a big part of it is having a really um, solid understanding of the different forces, um, you know, the union bureaucracy and the government and the employers and whatever and how they operate. Um, because in a context where like a, you know, a union leadership, are, you know, the ones calling strikes and, um, you know, posting and, you know, re- uh, having very sort of left-wing kind of standpoints and a whole bunch of things, you have to understand at the end of the day that their position is as negotiators between, um, you know, the workers and the employers and they're willing to negotiate away, you know, certain things um, to 
in order to, you know, because that is sort of their position. That's sort of how they operate. They're willing to say, oh, we'll make, take this concession on pay and then maybe we can get a little, we can change something a little bit over here and, you know, we'll work within the system to, um, to you know, have a little tweaks here and there. Um, but as a socialist, I think it's important to uh, orient towards where our power exists as workers and that is in the workplace itself, not in the, you know, workers' power isn't expressed in at the bargaining table or in negotiations. It's expressed uh, when we're on strike and when we are, you know, taking action collectively. Um, you know, we're at our strongest when we're on strike. And I think the fact that we've been on strike several times already has meant that we are in a position, uh, a much more powerful position now than we than we were um, at a previous point in this pandemic. Um, we're in a position where we have some momentum behind us and we're able to um, have a real uh, solid chance at, um, uh, you know, getting other unions on board to engage in strike action and, um, you know, pushing the 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 wage claim, not just for ourselves, but for other unions as well, uh, above inflation, because basically every every single um, in every single industry, pay offers are being offered that are, are you know below inflation, which is in real terms a pay cut. So I think, yeah, really orienting towards um, yeah where we're most powerful, which is at the workplace, is sort of a really important thing about um, having a, a social perspective at work. Yeah, and congratulations. Because a whole bunch of us who are involved in other unions who, you know, are desperate for an example of pay claims ab- above and beyond inflation, which is actually a, a pay rise and not a pay cut, um, really can use your example and your continued struggle in our own workplaces. And everyone who's listening to this should consider, if you don't already know much about it, reading some of the articles that we have up in red flag on on the nurses in new south wales it seems crazy to me that this is a just one beacon example because surely there should be more people who are angry and outraged and active around this healthcare crisis and maybe my you know armchair psychologist um, reading of the situation is people are just sort of terrified and don't really want to think about it and therefore don't really necessarily want to do anything about it. And of course, nurses at the front line are starting to say, okay, we're going to do something about it. Cecilia, what would be your take on that kind of, why is there not more of a broad sort of anger and organizing around this healthcare crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you I think you're really right, um, Roz, in terms of um, uh, like I think people are angry. I think people are terrified, um, which I think is actually a reasonable really reasonable response. Um, but then the next question is, well, what do we do about it? Um, you know, the healthcare system is presented as this big complex beast, um, you know, and then like, you know, uh, Daglin was talking about some of the arguments coming from like the union officials around, oh, you don't understand the law, like uh, if we reject this, we'll get nothing. Like, my goodness, how many, how many union members heard that argument coming from officials lately? Like, I know I have. Um, you know, and these like alternatives are quickly dismissed as naive. But I think the other the other thing too is that like with the the states around Australia, like abandoning all um, health, like public health care measures, measures around, um, you know, limiting the spread of COVID. Like, uh, 
everything is is sort of being put back on the individual in terms of like the only way you can do anything is is through individual efforts of um you know preventing um the spread of COVID and that sort of stuff um but yeah and I think we do we need more examples and and um of how we can fight back um you know I think because of the downturn and union struggle over um the past couple of decades um we don't have um, as many um, things to look to, which I think is why it's so exciting, all the things coming out of New South Wales. Um, obviously, with the nurses and with the work that, um, you know, comrades like Declan and, and um, Nat have been doing in the in the Nurses and Midwives Union there, um, but also with the other public sector workers and how, you know, all these different um sectors are kind of inspiring each other and, and egging each other on in terms of, of furthering the fight, um, you know, and I think they're great examples and things that we can all look to in terms of how we can organise. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think the other the other great example that, you know, I don't think I don't think I could do a podcast on healthcare without talking about the nurses in the Victorian nurses in 86. Like unfortunately that's sort of so long ago now. But um, you know, that's such a brilliant example of um, you know, when we hear officials saying, Oh, well, we just can't do it that way, like this is not how it works. Like in 86, you know, was when they were introducing the accord. Um well, rolling out the accord, the union bureau, um, leadership sort of were telling people, you know, or making deals about not striking and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the nurses went on, took sustained strike action, which included um, nurses in ICU and emergency work walking off the job. Um, and they were supported by the community um, and, and by patients and family members and that sort of stuff. And they won. They won and the conditions that they won, they still have today and are recognised internationally as, um, you know, uh, gold standard um, conditions and something that the New South Wales nurses are fighting for right now in terms of um, nurse to patient ratios. Um, so, yeah, so we, I think people are angry, but we need more examples. There needs to be more leadership. Um, there needs to be there needs to be more socialists in unions so people, you know, that more people are making sort of arguments that Declan and and, and Nat are making in New South Wales. Mm. Yeah, it's not a bad idea to do a podcast on the 1986 nurses' strike at this point. Absolutely. Would be yeah. <laughs> Might have to have you back again, Cecilia. But, mm. um, <laughs> I can talk about it all day. That's fine. Yeah, make a note <laughs> of that, Liam. Um, yep. So one thing I was just thinking in terms of, your initial response, Declan, around what would nurses do? You're like, it's not some scientific technical answer. It's literally just like put a huge amount of investment in the hospital system, you know, um, pay people better, treat people better. That's it, you know. And thinking about that as sort of a radical suggestion, when you put it alongside examples in the history of capitalism, so not in some other system of operating but even within capitalism, at times when an economy has been suddenly shifted into like a war economy, it's very possible to totally reshape funding priorities to put billions of dollars into something or, you know, bail out the banks in the global financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera. It happens all the time. It just doesn't happen when it's workers who are suffering. It happens when it's rich people who are worried about not being rich people anymore. And it's what happens when imperialists think they're losing grip on their 
global positioning, they can do it then, but not for the rest of us. And so, Jerem, I wanted to end with you. If you have um, any kind of inspiring lessons from history, I guess when we have been able to win things and we have been able to fix these kinds of crises in society, no big pressure on you here, but. Well, <laughs> tell us a story. We, we haven't actually achieved socialism yet, so there are many stories yet unwritten. Um, but just a, a few things on that. Like, uh, uh, well, I mean, obviously, like it's a big deal. Like, if you lived in any sort of sane society, you would, at the outset of the pandemic, you would say, okay, it is a huge deal to have a new lethal pathogen circulating around the world. Like, we are going to have to reorganise stuff. We are going to have to reprioritise stuff. We are going to have to fundamentally change the way that we work and study and have recreation. We are going to have to do everything that we can to stamp this virus out. And if that proves to be impossible, we are going to have to retool a lot of our productive system and reorient production into um, protecting people as best we can and and boosting the level of health uh, provision dramatically. We didn't do any of that, um, which, like, anyway, like, just there are very few people on planet earth i think that would say that all of that is a crazy idea but instead we've done the crazy thing um the like it is very hard in the, in the capitalist system to i think it's exceptional to find examples of where people have collectively resisted um over a health condition um, and the examples that do exist that I know of are where there's an already existing politicised uh, community or, or movement. And so I'm thinking of asbestosis, where, you know, for many, many years, the companies knew a century ago that their product, highly profitable product, was poisoning people en masse. It wasn't until the 1970s and especially the 1980s when construction workers in Australia um, and other, uh, you know, metal workers, uh, power station workers, strong industrial sections started to pick the whole issue up and turn it into an industrial issue that the powers that be started to take it at all seriously. Um, and the other one, obviously, is HIV, where, um, you know, it was political militants and radicals who uh, who grabbed hold of that issue and said, no, it's not just inevitable. Um, we're not just going to um, go quietly. We're not, um, you know, we're going to kick up a huge stink um, and fight to control the sort of healthcare that's delivered um, and the quality of healthcare that's delivered. Um, outside of those examples, and as Cecilia said, when you've got a pretty, like a union movement, which has been subject to extremely well-organised, um, you know, class collaboration and, and engineered defeat and retreat uh, strategy, if you can call it that, um, it, it just is going to be tough um, and it has proven extremely tough. I reckon, like, the, the points that, um, like, I mean, Declan's story is just so fantastic and it just reminds you, reminds me of, like, what, how much of a difference it can make to just having a, one or two, a handful of switched-on well-respected socialists in a workplace or an industry. Um, like not to say that every single, you know, good idea, you know, has to come out of the head of a socialist. And clearly that's not the case. Um, but having a bunch of people who know in their soul that management is always the problem, that the laws are there to thwart you and that you should, you know, defy them uh, when necessary, that your workmates are the only solution that's available. Even like, you know, even when your workmates are giving you the shits, like, you know, they are the only solution that we've got. So organising them is the only path to a solution. 
And having like the, the stuff that Declan was saying about uh, union officialdom, I think is really important. Um, if the class war was just bosses versus workers, like my job as an industrial organiser would be a hell of a lot easier. But negotiating around this contradictory but ultimately conservative layer, um, like that takes a bunch of skill and having a, 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 a decent analysis of that social layer gives you a massive head start to all of that. Um, all of which is, you know, an advertisement for building a socialist movement, which, you know, I guess brings me to Victorian Socialists, um, which is a project that, you know, myself and a bunch of other comrades, um, are, you know, really throwing ourselves into over the next few months, um, which is an attempt to get myself in Northern Metro and Liz Walsh in Western Metro elected to the Victorian Parliament and the point of that being not to be first in line to the parliamentary buffet every morning, but to help pull the socialist movement off the margins of Australian political life where it's been for so long. Um, and, you know, individuals and small numbers do an excellent work like Declan was talking about. And to pull the socialist movement into the daily, you know, discussion and the daily news and the daily controversy um, of Victorian Australian political life. Um, and... Yeah, so I, th I think that socialists have a huge amount to contribute to, you know, every concrete struggle that's happening. And also, we're pretty much the only people that pose the question, why the hell do we even have billionaires? Why the hell do we tolerate a system where healthcare is seen as a high fixed cost um, rather than necessity of life? And basically, who would you have who would you rather have running the health system? the Dom Perrottes and the Daniel Andrews of the world, the servants of the, the billionaires, basically, or the Cecilias and the Declans and their tens of thousands of workmates, their hundreds of thousands of workmates. When you pose the question like that, um, I think it invites a pretty damn obvious answer. So that's what I've got. Yeah. Mm. I I mean, I agree. <laughs> 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 I just, the... I'd love, like, any time hearing stories from Cecilia and Declan just talking about uh, maintaining some humanity in absolutely inhuman conditions. Um, yeah. That, you know, collective sense that health workers have of, um, yeah, of working to a really good end and not being ground down and finding a way to fight alongside all of that. Um, anyway, you guys are just an inspiration. What can I say? Uh, and I also agree with that. And so I say thank you very much for spending some of your hard-earned leisure time Absolutely. with us on Red Flag Radio. And I hope to have you back again sometime soon, talking about some more victories and some more inspiring stories. So you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>